Hello and welcome to BioCentury This Week's special podcast. I am Simone Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief at BioCentury, and I'm joined today by Jay Bradner, President of Novartis Institute for Biomedical Research, more commonly known as NIBA. Jay, so first of all, welcome to the new format at BioCentury. This is one of our first guest podcasts. It's one of a two-part series with Novartis. My colleague, Steve Usden, spoke to your colleague, John Tsai, Head of Global Drug Development and CMO, just a couple of days ago. So I want to spring forward from that discussion and talk to you about the fact that in this COVID-19 world, we've seen a flood of activity. We've seen academics, biotechs jumping in, trying all kinds of therapies and experiments, but really the biology is still unfolding. So what do you think right now are the most important questions on the research end that need addressing? Well, Simone, first of all, thanks for allowing me to join your program. I'm delighted to have a chance to reflect on where we are in the understanding of SARS-CoV-2, the clinical manifestations as COVID-19, as well as to share some of the efforts ongoing at NIBR and in the industry to respond to what is proving to be an incredibly challenging and devastating global pandemic. Scientifically, there's still quite a lot to learn about SARS-CoV-2, of course, the causative virus for the COVID-19 pandemic. But I want to lead by saying it's just amazing what the community of science has produced in such a short window of time into the public domain about this virus and its clinical manifestations. This has been a remarkable moment for pre-publication and open science and collaboration to really put humanity in the best position possible to respond. We have, in some respects, atomic level resolution on some of the critical protein targets within the SARS-CoV-2 genome, but there are still a lot of unanswered questions. We have benefited as a field from prior research on the coronavirus family following the MERS and emergent SARS epidemics. There was a blush of research that augmented our understanding of these RNA viruses, their genome organization, the way that the mRNA that ultimately yields extended proteins is cleaved and processed. There's quite a lot known now about this family of viruses. And so when SARS-CoV-2 emerged, there were some critical eyes to dot, and we still have a lot of work left. For example, the ability to study SARS-CoV-2 in cells and in small laboratory animals remains a great challenge. And for those of us who are trying to find medicines that we have on the shelf that we might reposition as coronavirus therapies, or to allow the invention of first intentional oral SARS-CoV-2 therapies, the ability to cultivate and to study the infectivity and lethality of the virus in laboratory models remains a real gap. Can I ask about that? Is that something unique to this virus or is it just because we haven't been doing it for very long? It really is just a matter of time that acutely laboratories like ours have organized around gross profiling studies to find if there's anything on the shelf that could reduce the infectivity or cell killing of the virus. These assays can be informative, but they're not quite robust enough, precise enough to select molecules, say through a lead optimization campaign in drug discovery. There is presently a monkey model of coronavirus, but we don't as yet have small laboratory animal models that are informative 
to the pulmonary manifestations of the disease. This will happen in time for sure. And we know of many groups working very hard on these efforts, but sometimes time can't move fast enough. So is there coordination of these efforts? Because I know there's a lot across the industry going on, especially at a clinical level, but presumably you all want to be speaking the same language for preclinical models as well. Fields of science function really well when they function competitively, it turns out. That the drive for publication in academia and industry, that the drive for financial reward in the biotech sector or profitability in the pharmaceutical sector are really very positive drivers of innovation. And so we're all used to working a little bit collaboratively, but typically pretty competitively. This pandemic has brought out something really wonderful and fundamental, I think, about humanity practicing science, this immediate willingness to share ideas, to talk through strategies more openly, not so much to coordinate activities, but just for clarity and transparency about what each other's research priorities are. It's quite uncommon for us at Novartis to call our neighbor Takeda and ask for a stick of butter. But as we at Novartis have great capabilities in drug discovery for, say, the viral protease, we don't have a coronavirus expert on our research staff. And so through a small number of organizing groups, we've had a chance to connect shoulder to shoulder to scientists who are typically our fiercest competitors to ask the question, is there more to be gained from all of us collaborating on certain threads, but not all threads, but certain threads of this science? So I want to go back to the biology for a minute. And I know you guys are studying it and the structure function studies. You talked about having atomic level resolution. So what did we learn at a science level from SARS and MERS that is giving us a leg up in this new coronavirus? Well, truthfully, Simone, we've learned so much, and I'll just give you a handful of bullets. We understand completely the genome organization of SARS-CoV-2 at the base level resolution. We have sequenced now each base of the coronavirus genome. The genome structure is quite similar to SARS, if not almost identical in structure. And, and this predicts and will soon be confirmed through biological research exactly how many proteins are generated from these large um, open reading frames that are expressed. By analogy, we found that a couple of proteins, the 3CL or MPRO protease, the RNA-dependent polymerase, what are traditionally the best targets for antiviral drug discovery, we've learned that the SARS-CoV-2 proteins that the SARS-CoV-2 polymerase and protease are very similar, almost identical um, to SARS. So though specific target validation studies have yet to be performed genetically with SARS-CoV-2 proteins, by analogy to SARS, we take a leap of faith and initiate immediate drug discovery. There are then some gaps on the function of each of these proteins, but crystallographers in China and in the United States principally have started to solve the high resolution crystal structures of these targets, giving drug hunters like us guidance as to where the little pockets are where we might position active prototype drugs and in the fullness of time, real coronavirus medicines. Have there been any surprises for you? Has anything jumped out as something you wouldn't have expected? 
That's a great question. You know, the biggest surprise is just how similar the protease is. We got excited at Nibber in February as reports were coming in from our Shanghai site and in the newspapers about the mounting burden of this disease. We got excited about organizing around making a coronavirus medicine, a bespoke medicine for the main protease or M-Pro. And so when the high-resolution crystal structure published, I was very excited, downloaded the file, superimposed it upon the pre-existing MERS and SARS proteases. And I was just so surprised and sad to see how identical the SARS-CoV-2 protease is to the SARS protease. The crystallographers use a term called RMSD to imagine how similar one protein is to another. And this RMSD, this root mean squared deviation of this um, new protease and this new virus was less than half an angstrom different from the prior. In fact, the active sites are superimposable. So why did this make me sad? It, yeah. it means to me that if in 2003 and 2004, after SARS, science and scientists have had, had the forethought to organize around innovating protease inhibitors for SARS, and had this research been sustainable, had we really, as a community, had we seen it through, we would have very likely active coronavirus medicines today. You know, we find this experience a real responsibility now. And so shame on us if we don't organize as a community around the innovation of a SARS protease inhibitor, SARS polymerase inhibitor, a SARS methyltransferase inhibitor, and, and, and chemical biology and drug hunters in the community will surely find new and creative inroads to these viruses beyond small molecules such as neutralizing antibodies to the spike protein for which there is now elegant crystallographic guidance, as well as RNAi against this RNA genome and, and, and. It's been very helpful to have a sense of what priorities members of our community have. Though it didn't drive our decision to go after the protease, we've been very open with the stage of this research and inviting of others to contribute where they believe that they can. Yeah, I mean, it is a pretty sobering thought. And, you know, I think when this started, we saw all sorts of consortium, we'll get to that question in a moment. But generally, the idea was, well, the first thing will be repurposed therapies. That's, and of course, is the case, you know, they will be the fastest to get in. But we have been documenting the number of new, new entities, right, new molecular entities that people are designing for this. And in biocenturies, portal, we've got more than 400 compounds new and repurposed, which is a phenomenal amount. I thought that by now they would be waning, but they're not. They're getting new ones every week. And I think at the beginning, we thought, well, they'll get in, there'll be a vaccine. And will any of these new ideas ever actually go all the way? Because what we saw with SARS and MERS, SARS the first time and MERS was that, you know, investment goes away. So I suppose the real question is, have we learned? Do you think this is big enough that it's different, that we're going to keep going? And we do, of course, have that thread of a second and maybe even a third wave. Well, I should start by thanking you all for assembling the portal. We use it as a resource just all the time. And it's not on every conference call where you learn of every new idea or insight or clinical translation in the making. And so thank you for pulling these data together. I do worry 
about the sustainability of this research in the community. While so many of us are working from home and laboratories are at say 25% occupancy, and mostly while the horrific challenge of the pandemic plays out for family members and friends and communities, well, this science is of course quite top of mind. There was a blush of very productive research in 2003 and 4 after the SARS epidemic initiated, but it just wasn't sustained. And so I do worry a little bit that on the heels of this pandemic, and I just can't wait for that day, of course, that scientific priorities will shift or quarter two challenges emerge and we're forced to take portfolio decisions that could jeopardize sustainable research in this area. So I, I wanted to ask you a question about these consortia. And, you know, one of the very interesting things about the COVID R&D consortium is that this is sort of a spontaneous one where the industry just came together and said, let's just do this. You know, I don't know how many Zoom calls you're on a week Jane, with all the consortia. Are you and your peer R&D heads, I'm sure you knew each other beforehand anyway, but the idea of you all getting together on this regular basis, are you learning things about each other? Is it changing your dynamics in, in a different way? Well, it's fair to say that this group doesn't spend enough time together. About once a year through a group called Heaver, we assemble often at a meeting that's attended by the FDA commissioner, leaders of the EMA, and Francis Collins from the National Institutes of Health, and importantly, a legal counsel representative to ensure that the discussion there is around public-private partnerships and maintains just the righteousness of the gathering. I've always really looked forward to that meeting in April because as you ask, it's a chance to get to know these great leaders of other R&D organizations a little bit more personally, get a sense of their perspective on what they see in biomedicine today as the big opportunities, and to challenge ourselves to find ways to collaborate in what is you know, such a productive, competitive business. But these gatherings are just once a year, and maybe for only a couple of days, we may run into each other on the hills of San Francisco at J.P. Morgan. Over the last three months, the cadence of meetings through COVID R&D, through IMI, through the Gates Therapeutics Accelerator, and now through the foundation of the NIH have really knit us together, I think in a much more cohesive way. We started the COVID R&D collective, I guess you'd say, as a group of research and development leaders, somewhat autonomously, because we all recognize the immediacy of the situation and with very generous budgets to do research and with headcount that we can very nimbly deploy without so much as an organizational meeting, we recognize the capacity to jumpstart clinical investigation and basic science research really without the requirement of a third party. These meetings have been so engaging. I have found it really heartwarming. And more than that, the moment of inertia that's been created around the research is very energizing. As you know, there are right now groups organizing around sharing data from vehicle control or placebo studies as a part of master protocols to more efficiently do signal finding research. And we're participating in some of these work streams. We found at Novartis after the first couple of meetings that it might be faster for us to just write three phase three trials, work with the FDA to get them open. And in about six weeks, we went from the concept to an approved study design for COVID-19. The partnership with the regulators has been so positive now, truthfully, as always. 
And then back in the labs, you know, typical business development, it's like you're going on a, a series of dates and maybe by the 10th date, you know, you finally have a sense of what everybody's interested in actually doing. We just stood up a protease team right away, let everybody know how we were going about it, the type of chemistry that we were interested in, the, the assays in their full description, sharing the crystal structures that we have in a hope that we could attract scientists to the effort and, you know, so appreciate Andy Plumpet Takeda just throwing his hand up and said, we've got some protease inhibitors. You're welcome to test them. So this COVID R&D group has been very high performing because there's no intermediary and, and there's not a lot of bureaucracy within our organizations to action priorities. So that's a great response, Jay. I'm going to end with a couple of crystal ball questions for you, right? Okay. So let's think a little bit about vaccines, mRNA as a vaccine, a lot of interest in this because it is way faster to make and maybe more versatile to manufacture. It is also untested. If it works as a vaccine, how big an impact do you think that would have on the whole vaccine field? Do we all just stop everything else and go to mRNA vaccines? I am very taken with the concept of mRNA vaccines. I should disclose that I am neither a vaccine expert, nor does Novartis have a scientific interest in anti-infective vaccines at this time, having exited that business with the sale of our vaccines unit to GlaxoSmithKline now some years ago. Appealing to me about mRNA vaccines is our scientific experience at Nibber that intended to make mRNAs that express antibodies to immediately respond to bioterrorism threats. This research thread was quite successful at Nibber, but in intramuscular injection of mRNA, we managed to recruit large numbers of very active antibodies against the antibody, anti-drug antibodies. It turns out that the injection of RNA into muscle or other tissues of the body induces a very strong and immediate immunologic response. What is unknown is whether there's both a strong B and T cell response. What is unknown is whether the response is adequate to neutralize the high titer of virus in the bodies of patients. And lastly, what's unknown is the durability of this immune response with an mRNA, say lacking some of the adjuvants that traditional vaccines are made with. This is science and it's very new science, but it would be very exciting if it could work, even providing a temporizing vaccination that perhaps would need then repeat dosing because mRNA is so easy to make. You can design these vaccines on a computer and potentially as the virus were to change over time, one could very easily, without much fuss in the laboratory, pivot to a new sequence that keeps up with the virus. I think that this will be sort of the moment for mRNA technology in vaccination to really declare itself as quite promising or quite limited. And so I'm very thankful then that adenoviral, adeno-associated viral, protein-based, attenuated viral vaccines, the sort of stalwarts of vaccination are being very intently pursued right now. That's great. And then my last question, you know, we don't know if a vaccine's going to work. We know that for HIV, it wasn't the solution or hasn't yet become the solution. Do you think it's inevitable that if it's a therapy, we're gonna need a cocktail of therapies given the complexity of the disease? And is that something we're really going to have to wait a very long time 
to to see come to fruition? Oh, you ask two really important questions. I'll give you the quick answers and then we'll double click. First, it's unclear whether the coronavirus family will prove itself to be as responsive to vaccination, say, as even influenza, or whether its capacities in anti-immunity will render vaccination very challenging. It's just unknown. Second, I do believe it will take a cocktail of therapies to effectively treat this infection. The viremia is so robust. The tissue damage is so aggressive. The chance for resistance in an RNA virus is quite high. Even with a slow mutation rate, the selection for single drug resistant virus could be very fast. And so as for so many other viruses, having both a protease inhibitor, perhaps out of our shop, and a polymerase inhibitor, perhaps out of Gilead or other, I think will be ultimately the winning hand against coronavirus. Well, we could talk all day. I certainly could ask you questions all day, but we're out of time. Thank you for joining. This was a great conversation. This podcast is available at BioCentury's website, also via Spotify, Google, and Apple. BioCentury's coverage of coronavirus, including lists of compounds in development and clinical trials, is available with no paywall at biocentury.com slash coronavirus.